Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab today. Well, today we got another little design diary, little design journal, talking about one of my games, a game that I've been working on for quite some time now. It's a little football game, a game called Dungeon Ball. And the reason I'm doing a design journal, I got a lot of really good feedback on the last one, the, the one I did for Hunted, a solo game. And so a lot of people said, hey, we want more of those. We, we want to get a behind-the-scenes look at all the, the things that go into making a, a game, you know, designing all the art, graphic design, the publishing, the, the Kickstarter side of things, all those things. We want to see behind the curtain. And so I am glad. Obviously, I'm glad to talk about one of my games. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having some other designers on in the future and talk about their games and how they came to pass. There's already some episodes that I have uh, recorded that are coming up here in the next few months. And they'll air and just doing a deep dive in specific games and, and kind of how they came to be and why the mechanisms were, were chosen as such and the playtesting process and all that. So I'm really excited to do not only my own, but obviously uh, other designers' games, especially some of the best games on the market, right? Some of the you know top 50, top 100 board game geek games. Uh, and just kind of help all of us, including me, to see behind the curtain of how these games came to fruition. And then obviously, you know, talking about one of my, my games, it's on Kickstarter right now. So there is a little bit of, you know, this is, Part advertising, let me just be upfront about that and talking about my own game. And, oh, hey, have you heard about my Kickstarter? <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but also, it's it's cool because you can go see what I'm talking about. This isn't doesn't just have to be audio. You can go look and see the game. I'm talking about you can check out the mechanisms. Uh, you can see the different things as far as the, the campaign, the Kickstarter thing. And, and I'm going to talk about some things that are going well. I'm going to talk about some things that are going not so great at all. So this is a really interesting project for me to discuss. I waited until the night before uh, this this episode would air to record this. So I'm coming, I'm talking on Tuesday. It will launch on Wednesday because uh, I wanted to see how things were going. That way I could talk about them and talk about, hey, what's working? What am I thinking? What might change? What might I do? Am I going to cancel? Am I going to try some different you know, marketing tactics? What am I going to do? Are things going really, really well? And, and we're hitting you know every stretch goal. I wanted to wait and see what was going to happen. So it's kind of a cool thing. It's, it's not just a design diary, but also a publishing diary uh, as well, Kickstarter diary as well. So anyway, let's just jump into it. So Dungeon Ball is actually the second football game that I have designed. The The first one is now, it's called Dungeon Ball Dynasty. And that, that game is more of a, a team builder where you're going out and recruiting uh, players for your team. And, and that, that game, it's pretty big. There, there's a lot of things going on with that one. It's a little more uh, strategy-based. It's not quite as tactical. It's, it's not, you know, one game. It, it's a whole season. It's multiple seasons and you're trying to do different things. And that, that game is a journey in and of itself. That was the first game I really and truly buckled down on and said, you know what? I am going to finish a game. I'm going to make something good. <laughs> I'm going to do something that I'm really, really proud of. Cause up until that point, that was about three years ago. I've been working on these games for a while, but about up, about up until three years ago, I, I had just done service level stuff. I just designed, you know, here and there when I felt like it, when I was motivated, when I got a little inspiration and things like that. And none of, none of the games were any good. Uh, they were all just basically retreads of other games that I really liked. Uh, there wasn't much me in those games, so to speak. Like you, you probably wouldn't play any of those early early games and say, "Oh, this this feels like a Barrett publishing game" or anything like that. Uh, no, they just seemed like, "Oh, this is pandemic, but in space." You know, it was a lot of just kind of rethemes and redoing 
ideas that had already been done, maybe doing them a little bit differently. And it was, it was learning, it was a growing process. And I did that for probably five or six years of just kind of every now and then off and on having ideas. And, you know, I would put together prototypes, not play tests. So it wasn't just writing down ideas. It was, you know, doing some things, but I never finished a game through that time. Uh, it was just something that was kind of a, a distraction, something to do on the side. The Game Crafter came along, you know, I think 10 years ago at this point. And so I found the Game Crafter, you know, not too long after it had uh, been an idea. So I guess this was like seven years ago. But anyway, uh, so that was kind of cool to, you know, see pieces and, and be able to print things and have them shipped to your house and, and then, and then it sit on the shelf <laughs> more so than just my note cards sitting on the shelf. Oh, now I have nice printed, you know, clip art, uh, things, boards and cards and things like that. That, that. that can, they can sit on my shelf. That'd be great. And so anyway, when I, when I really, when I got into the podcast, when I started doing this stuff for real, I thought, okay, let's, let's take this game design thing seriously. Let's, let's give it a go. Let's see if it's something that I can, you know, turn into something bigger, maybe not necessarily a profession or anything like that, but you know, just something more than just a hobby. And so, you know, football game is obviously based on my background and what I enjoy and what, what I know a lot about. It, it just kind of made sense. And there's not a lot of football games on the market. Uh, one of my favorite games is called First and Goal. And so I really like that one. I thought, okay, I can, you know, football games are, they do exist. They are some, there are some out there. And so I started working on uh, that first one and it ended up being a finalist in the Cardboard Edison Award that year. And I was super excited about that and I got some really good feedback on it uh, early on, the game was way, way too big. You know, as as is common for early game designers, you know, the scope of that game was just way too much going on, way too many things that needed to be streamlined. And so, you know, over the course of uh, I don't know six months, eight months, a year, uh, I was able to streamline it down and get it, you know, right kind of where it needed to be. And then ended up meeting with a publisher, and they really liked it, and they they took the prototype home with them after the the meeting that we met at Origins, and I was feeling really good uh, because this publisher had access to the NCAA licensing. They had access to the SEC license. And that was, that was just a dream. But, you know, I thought dream come true, right? That I could have a game that actually had Auburn and Alabama and LSU and Florida, like all these teams, you know, uh, that were so near and dear to my heart. And I could actually play as Auburn, as the Auburn Tigers, you know, being a, an Auburn grad, a former Auburn football player. Like that was just the dream come true. And uh, I won't go into too many details, but uh, let's just say that that did not happen. Uh, it was a very much a frustrating year, year and a half of just publishing hell and the game just kind of being stuck and, you know, not not getting returned on emails and just being strung along, let along. It was just frustrating. And uh, things that I let continue because I, I didn't have access to the SEC license anywhere else. You know, if it was just a publisher in a random game, oh, you know, about zombies or or space or whatever. Well, there's a m- bunch of publishers that, that publish those kinds of games. Not too many publishers that take a risk or take a chance on sports games and definitely not that have access to these licenses. So it was just a really frustrating time. But anyway, I'll do a design diary on, on that game one day down the road. Um, my hope is that towards the end of this year, when uh, football season starts back up, maybe September-ish, hopefully run a Kickstarter for that. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's done. It's been done for a long time. Uh, it's one of my best games for sure. It, it's a ton of fun and I would love to see it come to life if, if that's you know, if, if that's something that, uh, that people want to buy, if it's something that people would see as a, a viable product. Now, I'll talk more about product ability here in a little bit, some struggles I'm having right now with this current game. And so while that game was just kind of stuck and sitting around, uh, I designed tons and tons of other games. Uh, but then, you know, I thought, you know, I want to design another football game. I want to design a game that's more on the field, that's two-player, back-and-forth, arcade-style action, one of my favorite Favorite, favorite, actually probably, actually it is, it is. My favorite video game is NFL Blitz. The original one, the one in the arcade, I've uh, played it a ton in college. Uh, there was a, a truck stop close to where my dorm was. It was just kind of a few miles up the road. 
And at two o'clock in the morning, this place is 24 seven and served incredible food, not healthy at all. And, they, you know, 2 a.m. just hanging out at the door. I'm like, yeah, let's go get something to eat. You know, it's a Friday night, something like that. And so we would go to this truck stop. And uh, while we were waiting on our food, we would play NFL Blitz. And the winner or excuse me, the loser had to pay for the winner's food. So, you know, raised the stakes a little bit. And I uh, just had a ton of fun and I got really, really good at it. And so I really just loved that experience. And so when I was designing, got into board games and, and kind of going down that, that road, I, you know, I thought it'd be really cool if I could recreate the experience of NFL Blitz, but in a board game. And what would that look like? How would that play? How, how would that go? How do you do that in such a way that, that players feel like it's an arcade style game, even though, you know, you're rolling dice and you're moving pieces on a, on a board, on a physical board and things like that. And so I just got to work and started thinking through, okay, what are the concepts? What are, what are the things that I'm trying to accomplish? And over the course of about eight months or so, six to eight months, I was able to turn that idea into what is now Dungeon Ball. And so I'm just going to go through the different concepts, different ideas, uh, why I made those choices, you know, what playtesting look like, uh, I'll give you a hint. It looked like my wife kicking my butt constantly. I'm pretty sure she has like a 96% win rate with this game. We've played, if you include all iterations of this game, we probably played 50 times and I have probably beaten her less than five. Yeah. The newest iteration, I think twice. So I've actually gotten a little bit better as the game has gotten a little more streamlined, <laughs> but she, for whatever reason, she's really good at this game. And uh, it's probably the case with most of my games. She beats me at almost everything, but let me just go through the different choices that I made. And if you're a football fan, then you're going to understand some of these things maybe a little bit better because you're going to understand the concept in real life. But even if you're not, I think it makes sense from a game mechanism standpoint, you'll be able to grasp all the different concepts and different ideas. And that actually leads to the first point, the challenge of taking a real life thing and turning it into a game is a blessing and a curse. It's fun. It's cool because you already have built in source material. You already know kind of what you're going for. You know, if, if you're doing a sport or you're doing a like real life uh, mechanism for manufacturing or, you know, clothing production, food production, different things like that. You know, coffee is, is a, a popular theme in board games. And, you know, you can take the literal coffee manufacturing process and then you just figure out how to gamify that. And so, you know, doing a sports game is very similar. But the difference is you're trying to gamify a game and uh, it presents some interesting challenges because sports have so many rules. There's so many things to think about, so many little nuances, you know, that really help to create that, that experience, you know, that atmosphere that that sport provides. And so how do you do that in game me mechanic, game mechanisms? Because there's certain things you, you have to have in there, but there's a lot of stuff you're going to have to make abstract. You're going to abstract them out to streamline the game. So because you don't want a simulation. I mean, you might, that might be the kind of game you're going for, but I was going for, you know, 30 to 40 minute two-player, family weight, you know, quick, action-packed, arcade-style, fun game. That's what I was going for. And so a lot of things are going to have to be abstracted out. And so then it just becomes a process of figuring out what those things are that need to be streamlined. And so a good good place to start is actually put in all the rules. You know, put in, put in all the pieces of the process. Uh, you know, if you're doing a manufacturing game, put in everything about that process and then start weeding out the things that maybe aren't quite as necessary or maybe you can combine some things Maybe, you know, a lot of things just aren't fun, especially if they're simulated. And so just figuring out uh, what those things need to be. And so with any sport, you got to figure out the field. Okay, what's the field going to look like? You know, are you going to have a, a grid? There's several football games out there, several sports games that have a grid and you have players on the on the field and you're moving. It's, it's basically like playing D&D, &D, you know, except, you know, a tabletop role-playing game, except it's a sport and you're moving around Blood Bowl. It's kind of like this where you're moving around different points. You know, it's very tactical. But the issue I had with that, one, I don't really enjoy tactical combat games. And so to do a sports game that's basically tactical combat, but instead of 
you know, killing your, your enemy or your opponent. You're just trying to get something across the line. You know, it, it didn't call out to me. That wasn't something that was super interesting to me. Plus, it's been done a lot. Blood Bowl already out there. It does it in, ama- in a, an amazing job at doing that. I don't want to make it just Blood Bowl, you know, part two, you know, 2.0, nothing like that. And two, it takes forever. Those games take a long, long time. Combat in D&D takes a long time because of the tactical nature of it. And so I want to do something that's a lot more streamlined. And so I came up with this field idea where instead of having a grid or you know, anything like that, uh, you had nodes where you basically have these circles and you go from circle to circle. And depending on what play you ran, you know, did you do a running play, a short pass, a long pass, then you would move to different nodes down the field. And, and based on the play you ran, you, you might move further down the field, farther down the field, or you might not move quite as far. So that's how it, that started out. And the field was massive. Like it was, it was a recreation of a football field. It, had, it was 120 yards and uh, you would move. And it took a long time. Drives took a long time. And so what ended up happening was the offensive player was doing a lot of the action and the defensive player was doing some things, trying to hinder, trying to stop, trying to out guess and different things. But they spent a lot of time just kind of sitting there waiting for the offense to hopefully <laughs> not be on offense anymore. And so I had to fix that. So I shortened the field way, way down. I went from 120 yards down to like 50, down to 40. I mean, it just kept shortening. And then first downs were an issue. One thing I love about NFL Blitz, you need 30 yards to get a first down. And so that's just a cool concept in the game, right? That you have to go such a long distance uh, to get the first down. And so I've originally had that as a part of my game. But then the more I played it, the more I realized, you know what? Let's just get rid of first downs altogether. Let's shorten the field down. And you get four downs to score. You know, just like backyard football rules at your house when you're growing up. You get four downs to score. You know, you got to get past the Cadillac in the yard to, to get a touchdown. And if you don't, well, the other team gets a ball and they get to try. And so it became just four downs. And that sped the game up a lot. And it also increased the stakes of each drive because you knew you had a limited number of attempts to, to score. And, and so it increased the tension of the game, which is definitely uh, what I was going for. And then in figuring out, you know, how do I, how do you do offense and defense? Because they're it's basically asymmetrical. You're creating an asymmetrical game that is constantly changing. So, you know, I'm, I am this side and now I'm the other side and back and forth throughout the game. And so I figured out a system of basically where the, the defense could guess what you were going to run. So there's this this nine box player board for the offense. There's three three by three grid. And it's got three different types of plays, three different colors, and different ratios of, of the plays. So the, the easy easier ones to accomplish the running plays, you don't need as many icons to roll with as many icons on the dice to accomplish those. There's fewer of those. And there's more of the the long pass plays, which are harder to accomplish, right? but there's more of them on the board. And so figuring out the ratios was just a lot of play testing and, and figuring out, okay, what's more likely, uh, what what is too easy, what needs to be kind of nerfed a little bit to, to make the game a little more fair, a little more balanced on offense. And the player board is set up in a, in a pattern where a lot of times, depending on where your, your pawn is, your joystick, basically, is you only have two options. You could do red or blue. You know, you could do long uh, a short pass or a long pass. You could do a run or a short pass. And so the defense typically has a 50% chance of guessing uh, what you're going to do. And then it becomes this really interesting cat and mouse game because there's certain times we're going down the field, certain things are going to be easier or harder. And so I'm looking at my player board thinking, okay, well, this is going to be easier, but my opponent knows it's going to be easier. And so they are probably going to assume that I'm going to do this. And so they're going to choose a defensive card. That's going to be you know, a good, good way to stop this play. And so maybe I'll do the harder one. So it, it's going to require a little more luck. I need you know, to roll more icons on the dice, but you know, I'll have maybe a better chance because I'll have more dice. But then they know that I know these things. So it becomes this really interesting thing back and forth. And my wife and I have had a ton of fun of just bluffing each other and trying to outguess the other one uh, in our play test. And, and I've seen a lot of people you know, playing the game kind of have a similar 
experience where there, it just becomes this bluffing game uh, inside the game. And I was going for for a game kind of like King of Tokyo. I thought, what what if you know Blood Bowl and King of Tokyo converged? What if what if a game had kind of a Blood Bowl style theme with dungeon monsters, you know, mon- you know, fantasy monsters, but then had the streamlined nature of a Yahtzee style King of Tokyo style game? You know, some really cool game changing ability cards. But when you get right down to it, it's all about rolling the dice, pushing your luck a little bit, trying to get different icons. And so that's that's kind of where the, the I won't say combat system, the dice system, the rolling system started. And the way it works is you start off with five dice, but then you're never going to roll five. You're either going to add or subtract as the offense based on what the defense does. So if the defense is able to guess what you're going to do, you know, they, they put their card out in the middle of the table, guessing what I'm going to do. Then I choose my play and then they reveal the defensive card. And if they're correct, then I'm going to subtract dice. And if they're wrong, I'm going to add dice to my roll. And so it, 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 it's a big swing to be right or wrong as the defensive player because you're now you know, either taking dice away from the offense and it's going to be a harder time for them to roll the icons they need to move down the field or you're giving them more dice and it's going to be easier. And so it just it feels like football. You know, If you make the wrong uh, defensive call as, as the defense coordinator, as the head coach, if you call the wrong defense, you know, if you put a, a prevent, we're going to stop the pass defense out there and the offense runs – uh, a jumbo set with you know a running big you know two or three running backs and they just run it right down the middle of the field they're going to get a lot of yards if you if you call the wrong defense and so I tried to you know create that experience in the game and, and I feel like it really does feel that way it really does work so then the offensive player rolls the dice and they're trying to get certain icons you know based on what play they called and you're, then you move down the field and you're trying to get all the way to the to the end zone to score six points and then you you kick the extra point and now kicking field goals was another just some of my favorite parts of the game. Uh, it's another idea I had early, early on. You know, if you know me, if you've seen any other games I've designed, you know I love dexterity. I love dexterity elements in games. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of dexterity games, but I love dexterity elements in games, whether it's the final flick tier and your movement and your combat for your spaceships is all dexterity based or hunted mining colony 415 when the combat system is all based on dexterity. I love I love that mechanism. And so early on, I wanted that kind of mechanism in, in Dungeon Ball. So the way field goals and extra points work uh, is, is you have to be in certain range to kick a field goal. You have to get down the field to a certain point. And then the box, the inside of the box has a field goal post, very thematic. It's, it's made out of these like big pieces of lumber and like there's these like runes and stonework. And it's like, it looks like, you know, monsters in a dungeon made it. And you, it's printed inside the box and there's a football shaped die. And it's actually the, the die you use as you move down the field. And it kind of keeps track of what down you're on. And so you take that die and you have to, you can't cross the threshold of the box. You have to throw it from outside the box, but you toss it into the box and you try to land it inside the uprights, inside the field goal posts. And if you land it inside, then the kick is good. If it goes outside, which it often does because the shape of that die is, is it's a football. So it bounces funny and it rolls funny. And so if it goes outside, then it's no good. And that's just a fun little element of the game. I haven't seen that in any other game, anything to, to do it that way. Definitely not in a sports game uh, like that. And so it's one of my absolute favorite parts. Now, I know a lot of people don't like dexterity elements in games. And so that was another another design challenge, something I wanted to, to do early on. You know, a lot of people didn't like Flick Tier. They wanted a space game. They wanted a 4X style family weight uh, space game, but they didn't like the dexterity element. I understand. And same with Mining Colony 415. And that's, that's great. I totally get it. And so I designed a luck-based dice rolling system for field goals as well. And I think this is something important to think about. If, you're, if you are a, a designer like me and you really love dexterity elements, well, can you also offer an option that's not dexterity based, right? Because you're, you're going to lose part of the market if it's only dexterity. 
And so it, it's a really cool design challenge to figure out a way around it to do something different and to make it actually feel like part of the game, not, not like something you just pasted on. And so the way the dice system works, uh, again, you start off with five dice. And depending on how far away you are, you subtract the number of dice you're going to roll. And so if you're all the way out, if you're kicking, you know, the, the 50 yard field goal, basically, then you're going to have to subtract. There's four spaces between you and uh, the field goal post. You, you subtract four dice. So for that roll, you're rolling one die and you're trying to get a football icon. And if you get it, it's good. If you don't, it's no good. And the closer you are, the more dice you get to roll. And so it, it makes a lot of sense. It, it fits the football theme. You know, the closer you are to the field goal, the more dice you roll because the easier that kick is. And so it just makes sense. So I thought that was a really good way to kind of have both elements in the game, the dexterity style that I love, but also the luck-based style that other people love. And, and it just it just clicked. It just works. And so moving on to, let's talk about ability cards. So the game did not have any abilities, didn't have any special power-ups or anything like that for, for quite some time. Uh, and originally it was mainly because I wanted it to be like real football, either college, uh, whether, you know, I was still trying to work with that publisher and, and figure out the SEC license. So I thought maybe, um, you know, the college License would work, the SEC would work. And so I, I kind of created a normal football game, but it was kind of hard to do power-ups. And I thought, well, I could do the NFL Blitz style, but then I was just having some issues. And then the more I thought about it, as far as the theme, the more I realized that going with normal, you know, human, <laughs> you know, life, real lifestyle football, maybe it wasn't the best plan uh, because one, most gamers aren't into sports. It just seems that way. Uh, they're just not into sports. Sports games don't sell that well. For being totally honest, they do not make good products in the gaming industry. It just is what it is. Uh, there are some out there that do pretty well, but for the most part, they don't sell hardly at all. Uh, they really struggle on Kickstarter. If you look at the campaigns that have succeeded, you know, very few of them have gone over twenty thousand dollars. You know, most of them are in the kind of the five to ten, fifteen thousand dollars range. So you know, there's been a couple here and there. And so I was thinking, well, what can I do to make the game a little more appealing to gamers in general? And I thought, well, you know, people love. What do they love? They love zombies, they love space, and they love fantasy. And I thought, okay, if I could take, you know, the idea of, of a Blood Bowl style game, but then market it as, yeah, but it's super streamlined, super quick, you know, family, your 10-year-old your can play it, your non-gamer friends can play it. This could be a really cool gateway game for people who don't know anything about board games. They love fantasy football. You know, they get their little fantasy team and they keep track of that and they get their little league and they're in. They're, they're basically playing a board game, you know, uh, but it's all digital and it's all, you know, real life players and things like that. If you could take, you know, a gamer and say, hey, here's a game for those people that you could go to Thanksgiving, you could go to Christmas, you know, go on vacation, whatever, with family and friends that aren't gamers but love sports or aren't gamers, but love, you know, fantasy sports aren't gamers, but are open to, you know, this kind of thing. Maybe played sports in high school, whatever. Well, here's a game that you could introduce to them to say, Hey, check this out. And it would be easy to, to understand. The concepts would make sense. It'd be simple to play. It would play fast. So they wouldn't, you know, get bored or anything. And so that was kind of my idea. If I can, if I can do that, if I can pull that off, well, I think I might be able to make this thing work. And so I figured that fantasy monsters might be a really good kind of happy medium between you know what gamers love and, and kind of the fantasy style, but then also a sports game, which a lot of non-gamers love sports. So that was a theme that could kind of sit right there in the middle. And then also doing fantasy monsters opened up a ton of opportunities for game-changing ability cards, cards that you know you can only play once a game or once a half or something like that, but that would be really big in the moment, right? Give you extra icons on the dice, right? And have some really fun art of, of a giant ogre ripping the arm off a skeleton or a zombie pulling his arm off and batting the ball down, you know, for a deflection card or, you know, causing a fumble or, you know, different things. You could have some really fun thematic art 
in there, but then also do some cheat cards, right? So monsters, they don't play fair, right? Yeah, I couldn't do cheat cards if it was the SEC. I guess I could, but it, <laughs> it wouldn't make sense for the theme. Uh, but you could do, uh, I guess I could for the NFL if you're a Patriots fan. Oh, okay, just kidding. Sorry about that. Uh, I love Tom Brady. He's he's the greatest of all time. We won't talk about what happened to the Falcons a few years ago. I mean, that's my team, just as an aside, and I'm still not over it, but I digress. So with Fantasy Monsters, you could do cheat cards, and you could do things that were game-breaking. So one of my favorite cards, uh, it basically says uh, that touchdown is now, it only counts three points. And so you have your opponent, they just scored a touchdown, they're feeling really good about scoring six, and you throw that cheat card down, and all the cheat cards have a, an orc hand dropping golden coins, gold coins into a referee's hand, right? So they're paying off the ref. And these cheat cards do some interesting things. They might give you an extra down. They might take downs away from your opponent. You know, there's some cards that just will block field goals. Like, oh, no, that's blocked. And it's got the, the picture of, of a giant monster with a spear, and he's like stabbing the ball out of the air with the spear. Different things like that that all of a sudden could be added to the game, and it made sense thematically, right? And so not only did it kind of give some interesting things to go on, give you some interesting choices. When do I play this card? Do I play it now? You know, it's, it's only the first half. I can only use this once a game. Is now the best time, or should I wait till a little more? A pivotal moment or something like that. So it gives you some interesting tension, interesting choices, but then add a theme and some really cool art and fun things to do with the artwork and the thematic elements. And I could make it make sense. There's another thing I wanted to streamline out of the game were penalties. You know, penalties are normal in, in real football in any sport. You have you know, fouls, you have penalties that, that move the yards, you know, back and forth, that stop plays, that you know, give offense or defense advantage, things like that. But they're not super fun. Like it's not it's not fun to be playing if you're playing Madden, you know, in video game and, and then you got a holding call. Well, that big play you just had now comes all the way back. Why? Because the the, the dumb AI lineman just hailed for whatever reason. Right. It's, it's not a fun thing. Uh, penalties slow the game down. Uh, they, they make they make it less exciting a lot of times. Now, you have to have them you know, because people cheat and, and do different things. But I didn't want them in, in my game. And now with monsters, there are no penalties because they're monsters and they cheat all the time. And it's just normal. It's customary. It's what is expected. And so it just made more sense thematically and it streamlined the game. And so I think anytime you have a, a system or a sport or anything like that, that has, you know, the things of real life, figuring out thematic ways to get rid of certain things that aren't fun, get rid of certain things that, you know, make sense. And they are, they, they're part of the simulation, but they're just boring or they just make the game take too long or they, they, you know, bog the game down for players to make just too much to think about and analysis browse and things like that. If you can find a fun or cool thematic way to get rid of those things, you're really onto something. You're really getting the game honed down to what it needs to be and streamlined the way it needs to be. So anyway, those are the, the main systems in the game. It's a simple game. Uh, you know, not a lot going on. The rule book's not terribly uh, in depth. Isn't you know, it's not hard to understand, not hard to grasp, especially if you played the sport before. But I, another thing I wanted was accessibility. I wanted uh, a game that even if you'd never heard about football, you could pick this up, you could play it. It would make sense. You'd understand it, even if you didn't appreciate the the, the things from the real game. You could still enjoy the board game. And so that was definitely another challenge and something to think about if you're, you know, anytime you're designing something out of real life is make sure you're designing it in such a way that anybody can play it, that you don't have to have prior knowledge or, you know, native knowledge to enjoy the game or to understand it or for it to make sense. It's a huge challenge, especially if you're an expert. You know, I know a great deal about football. It was, you know, over 10 years of my life were, were spent in daily practice, workouts, film study, you know, games, all these things over a decade of my life. And so I know a lot about it. And, but that's actually a curse sometimes because I forget that other people don't know as much as I do. And so it was definitely a challenge to take a step back and go, okay, what are the things that I assume people know, even though they don't, right? Because it's natural to me, but it's not natural to everybody else. And so if you're really in the know of any, any process, right? No matter what it is, you know, 
shipping and, and fulfillment uh, as far as your, your game. And if you're, you're trading around, you know, different parts of the Caribbean and you've read all these books and you've seen all these movies and documentaries and stuff like that. Okay. Well, you probably know a lot more than any average person does. And so uh, you got to make sure not to overwhelm them with too much information uh, or also just don't assume that they know the things that you do. And so this is another place where playtesting comes in and, you know, it's great to have my wife because she didn't, she doesn't know a ton about football. She just knew that if I had the ball, you know, cheer and, and say, go score. <laughs> right. And, but it, you know, not a whole lot past that as far as the rules and how the game works and, and different things like that. And so she was really helpful in just saying, I don't understand this. And for me to go, oh, okay, I need to clarify this. I need to cut that out. I need to stream on this. And so it was great to have her along for the ride. And then the fact that she has beaten me almost every single time we've ever played. Uh, I think that it's just a, it just shows the accessibility of the game. She got really mad the other day. I won for the first time in a long time. And uh, she and I dominated. Like, I won by two or three touchdowns. And she just put her cards down. She said, I hate this game. I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, she loves that. Like, well, you've won, you know, the last 22 games. I don't care. I don't, I don't like it anymore. And so but we played again, I think, the next day. And she won. And then she liked the game again. So moving on into the, the publishing side of things, you know, as I was working on this game, that's around the time I decided to kind of do my own thing and, and go off and, and start my own publishing company, Barrett Publishing, and just do it myself. And it is in no small part due to a number of really frustrating, annoying experiences with publishers being lied to, you know, being told one thing and something totally different happening, uh, not being responded to, you know, going months without anybody responding to emails and, and just kind of being on the hook for different things. I've had really good experience with publishers. I don't get me wrong. Uh, Jason Tagmire was a ton of fun to work with. Uh, you know, did a game for him not too long ago. And so really enjoyed working with him and Jason Greeno over at Button Shy. Phenomenal people to work with. If you get a chance to work with them, I highly, highly recommend it. Great people. You know, so I've had some really good experiences, had uh, some really good pitches. Pitches go really, really well, but just not be good fits for publishers. Uh, I've had publishers be really excited about games and then take them and then play test them some more. And then it just wasn't quite what they were looking for or not, you know, maybe not right now, maybe a couple of years when uh, you know, certain schedule things happen. I've had some great experiences, but I've had some really terrible experiences. So I think, you know, as a designer, if you're listening to this and you're just getting your feet wet of trying to figure out well, how do I pitch games? How do I get my games published? Just take everything with a grain of salt. Right. Don't take any experience as being the law or being what's normal. I don't know that there is a normal. Right. I've had so many different experiences. I mean, you're dealing with people and people are different. Okay. And you're dealing with business and business can be ugly sometimes. Right. And just because these are games and they're fun and they're basically, you know, happy, happiness engines, right? You, you, you have these, these, these things you put on the table and make people glad. Uh, there's still ugly side, a lot of ugly sides to it. So just be aware of that. And that's why I think the board game design lab Facebook community is so important because you can get in there and ask questions. You know, I wish. I had been able to ask more questions on the front end, dealing with some, some I don't want to say shady, but like just publishers that maybe weren't on the up and up about some things. Because uh, now, you know, I've, I've talked to different designers that have become friends. And say, hey, what do you think? What do you what do you know about them? They'll go, oh well, you know, they don't they don't pay on time. You know, you, you'll be a year trying to get your your royalty payments, and that's not somebody you want to work with. And, and or they'll say, oh yeah, they're awesome, they're amazing, yeah, definitely work with them. And so just talking to other people and getting the inside scoop on on different companies, different publishers, different uh, people that are part of companies that maybe are in development, things like that. Huge, huge benefit if you can go in to the Board Game Design Lab Facebook group and just ask to, hey, you know, what, what do you know about this? And you don't have to, I'm not saying get on there and, and air a bunch of dirty laundry, right? And get on there and just start calling people out and throwing shade at people. Not, that is not what we're about, okay? That's not what that group is about. If that kind of stuff happens, it'll get deleted. I'll take it out myself, okay? But just going in there and saying, hey, does anybody know anything about this publisher? You know, send me a direct message. And let's talk, right? I'm not trying to put people on blast, especially without evidence and things like that. No, no, not what we're going to do. But at least get in there and ask questions 
you know, about, Hey, have you worked with these, this publisher or this person, whatever? And then can you send me a private message and can we talk privately? Cause I think that's, that's a much better way to handle it than just kind of airing things. Now, if you have a publisher uh, like Golden Bell, which have done tons of really terrible shady things and then lawsuits and all sorts of ugly stuff. Yeah. We need to talk about them out in the open because it's just been a pattern. They're not catching them on a bad day. It's not like, Oh, well their, their, their kid was sick. And so they had a really bad you know attitude for a while. No, like this, these are, these are people that are, are targeting designers, targeting people that don't know much about the industry, don't know any better, getting them into really awful contracts. And uh, yeah, we, we definitely need to talk about them because uh, in my opinion, they're just a, a post you, you, you want to stay away from. Uh, just in general, just as a rule. I, I don't know of any good situations that have come out of them. I know some really bad ones. I know a lot of lawsuits have been filed against them. So that's one that we need to discuss. But anyway, so around the time I was uh, forming my own publishing company, you know, I had I had all these games that were already done, that were already finished, that were just needed art, just needed some graphic design. And some of them even already had graphic design and art for, for different things uh, I've been doing, either trying to enter contests and, you know, paying a little bit of money to, to make them look a little bit better, have a nicer prototype and, and things like that. And so the other day somebody posted on Facebook, well, how does how does Gabe just you know keep coming out with all these games and game ideas and all these things? Well, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors because uh, I already had several years of games that I've been working on that and some several of them were already finished. And so you're saying, wow, how long does this take you to design? Well, maybe a year and a half or two years, right? It, it wasn't you know two months uh, like it kind of seems with the Kickstarter projects and things like that. It's just the way things have worked out that uh, I'm able to you know put games out on, on Kickstarter and and hopefully get them funded sooner rather than later because they were already finished. They were already in the process of being pitched or they were with publishers and then you know got uh, rejected or whatever it is for whatever reason. And then I know on the podcast before I've talked about, you know, the, the goal the hope is being able to go full time uh, this year, later this year, uh, hopefully summer ish. It would be, would be awesome with the way the schedule is kind of lining up. Well, this is one of the ways it's going to happen, not only from board game design lab stuff and the podcast and books and, and things like that, but also from uh, games and Kickstarter projects. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things if I can diversify as much as possible and create multiple you know, streams of income from different avenues, publishing books, publishing games, uh, podcasts and, and sponsorships and all these different things, then I can kind of piecemeal together uh, a living and piecemeal together, you know, uh, enough where my, my kids can eat and I can pay my bills and, you know, all that stuff uh, that, that you just have to do, just the needs-based things and like that. And maybe have a little bit uh, extra to, to do some fun projects as well. But we'll see how it goes. And so Dungeon Ball was done. And, and so I reached out to Ash Jackson, the guy that did the art for Final Flicktier. I was really pleased. I think he does an amazing job with characters, with, with fantasy monsters and aliens. Like he is just really, really good at that kind of stuff. And so I reached out to him to put together some really fun fantasy monsters, you know, doing some kind of goofy things based on the, the thing. Like there's one card I love that says it's called Extra Yards and it's this giant ogre and he's throwing a goblin down the field and the goblin's holding on to the ball. He's just holding on to it for dear life. And the ogre is basically tossing him down the field to get some extra yards. And so I, I gave him some direction on some things as I have some fun on some other things. And I think he did a phenomenal job on the art and really bringing out the, the experience, the style of play that I was going for. But I tell you what, the person who really has just outdone himself is Drew Corkle. Uh, the, the guy that's done graphic design for pretty much all my projects, maybe at this point, not all of them, but most of them, uh, the books and games and whatnot. He has done a phenomenal job. If you don't go to the Kickstarter page for any other reason than just to see the graphic design, it is worth your time. Because with all the textures and elements that he has just put into it, you know, the way the, the graphic design of the field looks, the scoreboard is, looks really cool. The the player board with all the plays on it and just kind of the, it's got this really cool fantasy style woodwork kind of thing. And, and all the cards, they look kind of like parchment and the fonts and like all these different things. He did a phenomenal job. The box, everything just looks 
amazing in my opinion. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but I, I think Drew is really just taking the game to the next level in how it looks. The art is really good. The graphic design is next level. The only challenge really with, with that has been the colorblind side of things. And so there's a lot of reds and greens in the game. And so Drew and I have recently been talking about, okay, how do we kind of switch some things up to make it more colorblind friendly? And so if you go to the page, you'll, you'll notice that it's got a lot of reds and greens. It's not going to be like that in the final. So we're already talking about, okay, how can we make sure that this game is accessible, is as accessible to as many people as possible? You know, a lot of people struggle with not being able to see things uh, as far as colors go. And so how can we just, just make it easy for them just so they can have a good time and enjoy the game like anybody else? But yeah, super, super excited about the way the game looks and components wise, you know, the football die. I'm really excited uh, about that and how it's come how it came out and how, how it kind of changes the game, especially with that dexterity element. So overall, the game, I'm super proud of how it looks. It's, it's definitely uh, something as a project overall, I'm very proud of. I think it's a ton of fun. Uh, it's obviously, again, I'm a little bit biased, but I, I've, I've designed the game that I want to play as a former football player, as, as a person trying to design a game. Four non-gamers, four family weight, you know, your 10-year-old, your 11-year-old can play it with you. You can both enjoy it and have a ton of fun. You don't have to pull your punches, so to speak. You know, I, I think I have accomplished everything I set out to accomplish, and that feels really good. And so even though the game's kind of struggling right now on Kickstarter to find its audience, uh, I'm still very proud of the project. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things, and I'll get to the, the Kickstarter side of things in a second, but it's one of those things, make the kind of games that you're proud of. Right. Because if you make a game that you sold your soul for or you, you know, you did certain things that maybe you're not super proud of, but it made you know, a whole bunch of money. That's cool, I guess. You know, it's nice to make a bunch of money for the projects you, you do. But I don't know. I feel like it's, it's better off. You're better off if you design something you really like, you really enjoy. You, you find a ton of joy in playing it and, and, you know, seeing other people play it, even if it doesn't find its audience. Um, at least you didn't sell out. I don't know. I guess there's a time and place to sell out. You know, it's hard to pay your bills sometimes without selling out to a certain degree. But this is a game I'm very, very happy about. This is definitely a game that sounds like me. Uh, and I get that. I get that idea from Miles Davis. Miles Davis said something to the effect of, "It takes a long time to sound like yourself. It takes a long time to sound like yourself." And I think that is definitely true. He was talking about music. You know, you, you have a tendency to emulate the the musicians that you love that you really get a lot out of, you, you tend to just copy. The same thing in writing, same thing in game design. You tend to copy great games, great game designers that, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's the mechanisms or the style of play or the experience or the themes, whatever, like I was saying earlier, you have a tendency just to copy other people. But eventually you get to a point where you start sounding like yourself. You start designing like yourself. And that's one of the things I really look at both this game and the other football game. They sound like me. The Final Frontier sounds like me. Hunted sounds like me. And so I'm, I'm really happy with where I'm at right now as a designer. And it's been a long time. Again, I've been doing this seven years, something like that, you know, off and on, really and truly working at it for like a little over three, you know, and really buckling down and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give, give it my all, not worried about motivation, not worried about inspiration. I'm going to schedule game design time. I'm going to do it as a professional, even though I'm losing money, not making money, you know, for a long time, I was just pretending, I was just volunteering, you know, basically, but I'm going to act like a professional. And then what does that look like? And then here we are, you know, a little over three years later, and I'm finally feeling like I'm in a good, good groove. I'm in a really good rhythm with my games. And so it just takes a little while. So if, you're, if you've been doing this for, you know, two days, <laughs> if you've been doing this for two years, you know, just keep going, keep at it. You will eventually find your voice. You'll find your rhythm uh, and you'll start sounding like yourself. You'll start designing like you. So, and you'll get to a point where people will play a game and they'll go, oh, this is, this is a Bob Jones game, right? They'll, they'll know exactly kind of who you are. If you play one of Eric Lang's games, you, you feel it. You can tell this is an Eric Lang game. Right. And certain things about it that just the kind of the way that he designs. Matt Leacock, same kind of thing. Stefan Feld, you know, a lot of these all time great designers, 
It took them a long time to find their voice, to figure out their rhythm and who they are. But now that they've got it, now they've figured it out. And they're still growing. You know, we're all still learning and figuring things out and trying new things. But they've figured out kind of who they are and who they like to be, who they like to design like. And so they design like themselves. But switching over to the Kickstarter. So I launched the Kickstarter Monday, January 13th. Right, So two days before this episode aired. Yesterday, as I am recording this. And I did it for a couple reasons. One, okay, well, let me back up. First of all, if you're a new designer, new publisher, do not launch a game in January. I, I just I just don't think it's a good idea. I think the last couple years, and then this year especially, publishers, big major publishers, tend to launch mid-January. Right? Right now, there's like four million dollar campaigns <laughs> on Kickstarter. Right? These massive projects, these really cool, amazing, over the top, over overproduced, if we're being honest, but just all inspiring projects. Beautiful art, amazing components, all these things. And Publishers tend that, you know, there's hardly anything going on in December because everybody's buying Christmas gifts and they don't want to buy something that they're not going to receive for, you know, eight months or a year or two years, however long it takes. And so publishers kind of hold back during December and then mid-January comes around and everybody's got that next paycheck, you know, and they, they've paid off Christmas basically. And so they got a little extra money in their pocket and then all, the floodgates open and you just have all these projects coming out. And so I knew going in January was not the best idea, but I wanted to launch the game during football season. And so I launched it on the day of the national championship. I launched it right in the middle of the NFL playoffs. I wanted to, you know, get it out there before the Super Bowl for sure. And so the project actually runs just uh, up until a few days after the Super Bowl. I wanted to do it in football season where it made a little bit more sense where people still have football in their brain. You sell more coolers in the summertime. You know, people are thinking about needing to keep their drinks cold. And so even if you offer it on a discount in the winter, they're not thinking about it. Right. And so you want to sell it when, when it's on people's minds. And so I launched it. Uh, and, and it's been kind of funny to just see day after day, all these other Kickstarters launching, uh, just these behemoths. Uh, and I'm super, super happy. A lot of, you know, I got friends at a lot of these companies that are, they're just doing amazing. I'm super excited for them, but just know that as a new publisher, new game designer launching in January, you're going to get overshadowed, right? I'm not saying necessarily that those campaigns are going to, going to make money and you won't because it depends on the game. It depends on lots of different factors and don't let it be an excuse, right? Don't take this as me making excuses. I'm not. Right. But just understand the market that you're getting into is extraordinarily noisy at certain times of the year. And so maybe work to launch during a less noisy. There's no not noisy times except December, you know, basically from Thanksgiving up until January 3rd or 4th, first week of January. That's like that's probably the only time of the year that Kickstarter doesn't really have a lot of noise. But every other part of the year, there's noise. And there's certain parts of the year that are real noisy. Uh, October is one just has tons of games because everybody's trying to get the game out on Kickstarter before Thanksgiving, before November kind of comes in. And so just, just keep that in mind, get into the data, do some research on the days, the times, the months that maybe give you the best chance of being successful because you won't, you'll show up better. You'll show up in the algorithm better. You won't be overshadowed by some of the other uh, games. You'll have more chance to be talked about on social media. You know, right now, everybody's talking about Dark Tower. And rightfully so. Everybody's talking about Oath, and rightfully so. There's a handful of games. We're talking about Monolith, but not from a good perspective. That that campaign is uh, the struggle bus. It is on the struggle bus. The struggle is real for a lot of reasons. I think that's a whole podcast episode in and of itself, what not to do as far as what they're doing right now. So that's that's one to just check out and just kind of grab your popcorn and, and just watch because <laughs> it's it's been interesting to say the least. You can learn a lot from what they're trying to do. They were trying some new things. I respect them. I appreciate what they're doing. But I feel like they have a, a lot that they can, they're going to take away from this current campaign that they've been running and uh, come back stronger and, and figure out some different ways to do it. I don't, I don't think they'll do it this way ever again. 
So anyway, you want to be aware of other games launching near yours, especially if they're similar. You know, if you're launching a $100 uh, miniature heavy game and at the same time as two or three others, well, that's, it's going to be hard to stand out. So just be aware of that. And also realize that sports games do not make good products on Kickstarter, right? Something else I knew. And so I went into this whole thing with pretty low expectations, right? It's a $5,000 funding goal, which some people have said, well, that's, you're just, you're just setting the price low so you can, you can hit it early. And then but it's actually not true. Literally $5,000 is what it takes to print and ship this game. Now, part of that is, is for a few reasons. One, I'm only printing 500 copies. So I don't need that much. It's not like I'm, I have, I'm not printing 2,500. You know, I'm working with a manufacturer that 500 is the minimum. So that's something to definitely keep in mind. Uh, also, the shipping is a little bit easier, a little bit cheaper because this game is going to ship at the same time as Hunted. And Hunted did really, really well. And so I'm going to print several thousand copies of it. And I was just trying to print 500 copies of Dungeon Ball. And they're going to ship out of China on the same container. And so I'm saving money doing that, right? It's not going to cost me as much money to ship Dungeon Ball, because I was already shipping Hunted. I could just ship them out at the same time. So I'm saving money there. And so the campaign, literally, to print and ship the game is five grand. No smoke and mirrors here, right? No tricks or anything anything like that. And so anyway, I had pretty low expectations going in. My you know, my, my wife asked me a few days before it launched, she said, well, what, what does success look like? And I said, if I could have you know around 300 backers total by the end, I would just be ecstatic. I think that would just be phenomenal. You know, sports games do not do well on Kickstarter. Sports games do not do well on Kickstarter. Know that going in. If you have a sports game or anything related to sports, okay, and you're going into Kickstarter, and it's maybe if you did a Euro, like a really <laughs> interesting, complicated, heavy Euro that's about sports or got some kind of sports thing going on, maybe it'll do well because that, that crowd on, on Kickstarter might go for that. Or a sports game with a ton of miniatures, right, probably do pretty well. Miniatures games, maybe any genre, do well. But if you have just a regular sports game, even with a fantasy theme, even if you're changing the theme to kind of make it more enticing, you're going to struggle because it's not a product made for the Kickstarter crowd. It's more made for uh, a game store crowd. It's more made to get into a big box store that people walk by and they see it and they, well, I love football. My grandson loves football. I'm sure he'll love this. That's that. It's, it's Meemaw at Walmart walking by and seeing you know a football game and then buying it for her nephew's birthday, uh, her, her grandson's birthday or Christmas, something like that. That's that's more that audience. You have to know that. So go in with low expectations. That way you're not super disappointed. So I told my wife, you know, around 300 people, that would be amazing, you know, to find 300 people. And that would actually get over into some really cool stretch goals. These are real stretch goals. Uh, these aren't just, you know, oh, I was going to add it to the game anyway. Uh, but, you know, this turned into a stretch. No, no, these are real because uh, to be able to go from 500 copies up to 1,000, you know, if I sold close to 500, then I would do 1,000 copies. I have enough money to do 1,000 copies. And so then the price point goes way down. It's dramatically different to print 1,000 than it is to print 500. So the stretch goals, they're real. Being able to open up uh, extra extra money because the, the scale and the way it works. And so I was like, that would open up some really cool stretch goals and, and you know, it, it'd be cool. And if the game could have, you know, around 150 in the first couple of days, it would fund. It'll fund on around, I think 142 was the number I, I kind of figured out math-wise would be the, the magic number to fund the game in the first couple of days. And I put a flash funding goal to add a cool different field, kind of alternate field on the back of the game board as this flash funding goal. And so, you know, I was like, okay, if I can get 100, around 150 first couple of days and then 150 throughout the rest of the campaign, I would just be exuberant, right? It'd be, it'd be amazing. Uh, and here we are about a day and a half in, and I'm sitting at 105 backers. So it's not, it's not exactly what I was hoping, not exactly what I was really, you know, not to say expecting, because again, low expectations, but I was hoping to fund the first couple of days. It doesn't look like that's going to happen unless something happens while I'm asleep <laughs> over the next, you know, 10 hours or so, uh, 8 a.m., Wednesday morning would technically be 48 hours. And so I don't know that we'll, I'll hit 150 people by then, 
Uh, and that's okay. That's just part of it. I think it'll still fund overall. It's just going to kind of creep along, limp along. And so I've been really thinking the last couple of days, been talking to Drew, talking to different people, uh, you know, Kickstarter folks about what should I do? Should I, I thought, I thought about, well, do I cancel? You know, do I wait until maybe, maybe don't worry about it being football season. Maybe it doesn't matter. Or do I cancel and like adjust the reward tiers? You know, right now there's three tiers. There's the dollar support, you know, just anybody wants to maybe get into the pledge manager or, or just support the campaign. There's the game. It's 30 bucks. And then there's the the game and the final flick tiers. You can get a bundle at a really discounted price. And so there's just three tiers. And so I thought, well, maybe I should have done a basic game that didn't have. So the game right now comes with these really cool wooden lightning bolt tokens that act as your momentum. You get momentum to spend ability cards and things like that. I've got some different content stretch goals that, that aren't the upgrade as far as like components and things. It's just like extra teams and things like that. So maybe the basic game could have just been real basic instead of wooden parts. It just has cardboard tokens, you know, only four teams. You don't get access to the other stuff. And then maybe do a deluxe version that had you know, a lot of wooden pieces, wooden components. It comes with a whole bunch of extra teams. You know, instead of, instead of worrying about stretch goals, just do extra teams, things like that. That's one thing I thought. Maybe I cancel, relaunch it with maybe different reward tiers. But the more I thought about it, the more I don't know, that I don't think that that's really going to be what makes the difference. And so I think right now the plan, and, and we can kind of see how this goes. You'll, you'll know better by the time this launches. Of instead of canceling, just re redoing some of the reward tiers. Instead of having a basic one, we'll just leave leave the one that's in there right now. It's thirty dollars. I'll explain my price point in, in, a, in a minute. It's thirty bucks. But then maybe instead of doing extra teams and whatnot as stretch goals, we'll maybe just do like a dungeon ball plus tier and and effectively just make all those extra teams an expansion. And just say, hey, for a few extra dollars, and I'm thinking three or four extra dollars, so $30 base game, $34 base game, plus all these extra teams and maybe some other things as well. And I do that, one, to give people that really are excited about the game, really want you know, want to play it, they, they're into it, you know, give them access to those extra teams if they, if they want them. And two, it kind of eliminates, I'm not just not going to worry about stretch goals. It doesn't look like the campaign's going to hit hardly any, um, maybe one or two towards the end, but just basically redo the, the stretch goals, you know, turn it only into component upgrades and not having any of the kind of in-betweeners of, you know, having extra content and things like that. Just put that into the plus box and, and just see what happens. So that's, that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. I don't really want to cancel the campaign and relaunch it. I think just riding it out and, and just seeing it through until the end. You know, football is all about the fourth quarter and we're only in the first quarter right now. And uh, if you watch the Chiefs and the Texans play on Sunday, you'll remember, you'll know that the first quarter uh, doesn't really matter, <laughs> especially as far as the fourth quarter. The end of the game is what people remember. The end of the game is what matters. And so uh, also maybe getting into some marketing, trying some giveaways, trying some different things, just to try to move the needle just a little bit. Again, finding another 200 people it's not terribly difficult. It shouldn't be, right? Hopefully, listen to this. You'll give it a shot and you'll check it out. And maybe it'll be a game for you. Maybe you hadn't even heard about it. Maybe you hadn't seen anything about it uh, so far. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to go check it out. Maybe maybe something you'll you'll enjoy. I think it. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a great gateway game to bring non-gamers into the hobby. Great game to to take to your family, to your friends that are into sports, not into board games, and help them come into board games through this game. I really and truly believe it does that well. And then going back to the price point, so. I was looking up comparable games, and again, one of my favorite games, First and Goal, it's $30. It's $29.99 from the publisher's website, and I was looking at everything that comes in that box, which is not a ton. It doesn't have a lot of components. Again, it's a real-life football game, and so they don't have all these extra cheat cards and ability cards and all these things. Uh, it's got a board, and the board's kind of cool because it's magnetic, and so the, the football that they have on there, it, it sticks to the board, and that's a pretty cool component. And then it's got a handful of cards, like a little deck of cards, and then it's got dice, but you have to sticker them, so they're not even custom dice. It's sticker dice. And that's it. And it's $30. And I was like, wow. Okay, so my game comes with a whole lot more than that. It comes with a ton of custom dice. 
It comes with a bunch of little wooden components to kind of keep track of things. It comes with these big player boards. It comes with a whole lot more stuff. And so let me charge the same price because people will see, well, I'm getting a whole lot more for my money than I did with some of these other games. So that was my, my thought process with the with the price point. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you got to do five times your manufacturing cost. Yeah, maybe when you're only printing 500 copies, that's hard because 500 copies cost a good bit more per unit than if you're printing 2,000 or more. And so the 5X thing doesn't necessarily work. You also have to think about, well, what are the other games in my class, the other games in my category? How much are they? And how do I either, either offer the game for less money or how do I offer a whole lot more value for the same money? And so that's kind of my, my thought process there and just what I was thinking about. And then you also have to think about shipping. So I'm only charging five bucks for shipping uh, for the US. Now, obviously it costs more than $5 to ship the game, right? But I'm building the cost of shipping into the price. So there's another thing I had to think about. I was like, okay, do I want to charge $25 for the game and $10 for shipping? Because that's about what the uh, shipping really is. It's nine to $11, you know, nine to $12, depending on where it's being shipped to. Or do I charge $30 for, shi- or for the game and $5 shipping? And I ultimately decided 30 for the game, five for shipping, because people, thanks to Amazon, thanks to earlier Kickstarter days when shipping is free, and everybody gets used to free shipping, so they don't want to pay anything for shipping. It just It's a psychological thing. And so the lower you can make the shipping and just kind of build it into the normal cost of the game, the more palatable the, the price point is overall. So just some things to think about as you're pricing your game, pricing your Kickstarter reward tiers and projects and things like that. So anyway, that's where the, the game is right now. The, the project is right now. And I'm going to have to call a couple of audibles and uh, change a few things around and, and mess with some of the reward tiers just a little bit and try to make them more enticing, make them more valuable uh, to people. Because again, sports games are hard sells. Lots of games uh, on Kickstarter don't, that don't do well would do much better in a different market. But the question is, do you have access to it? Right? If I had access to get games into Walmart, then it'd be a little bit different. I wouldn't worry about Kickstarter. But as a, an indie publisher, as, you know, just a one-man shop, uh, Kickstarter is the only way for these games to come to life. And so what I have to do is basically go to Kickstarter, get the funds to be able to print the game, ship the game, all that kind of thing, and then hope that I can uh, create some partnerships and, and work with people down the road. And again, it's all building, right? It's all about foundational. Uh, I'm really hoping that the game comes out and that reviewers love it and it does really, really well kind of out in the world. And then hopefully maybe get to do a uh, another Kickstarter down the road. Hopefully, hopefully get to do the other football game when football season comes around again in September. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. I'll definitely do more marketing and whatnot going into that one. I definitely could have done more for Dungeon Ball and just trying to get the word out. Got more names on the email list and, and things like that. Things, you know, that we talked about recently on the, those that two-part series of marketing. There's lots of things that I should have been doing earlier on that, that I didn't as far as building a crowd. And I built some of a crowd, but not what I need. And especially not for a sports game, because it's not it's not going to go viral like some of these other games. That, that People are just going to see them on Kickstarter and go, oh yeah, I need that. Right? It's, it's a much harder sell. You're going to have to sp- spread out to a different audience, a different group of people, and just be aware of the type of product that you have. And be honest about it. Just know the reality of it. And then be willing to make adjustments as necessary. So anyway, that's the design journal, design diary for Dungeon Ball. Hopefully this was helpful to you. Hopefully you got to kind of see a behind the scenes look at different things as far as the design of the game, the genesis of it, the development process, the business side of things, uh, the Kickstarter side of things. Hopefully this is helpful to you. I'm, I'm excited to do more of these down the road. I, I find them really interesting to just kind of think through the process of, of everything. And hopefully those of you listening really got something out of it. So I just want to encourage you to go check out Dungeon Ball on Kickstarter right now. Not just, hey, go buy my game or anything like that, but also just to kind of see what I've been talking about, see the amazing job the artist and uh, graphic designer have done. And then just to use it as a case study for a project if, if you're wanting to do one down the road and look at the things that I've been talking about and kind of see where I'm coming from. 
And if you wouldn't mind helping me get the word out on social media about the game, I would greatly appreciate your support in that way. But anyway, thanks for listening and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?